All right, uh, to our FAQ series. If you have any questions, we've had uh, questions submitted over the last few weeks. If you have a question that pops up today uh, according to our theme or uh, according, along with anything else, feel free to text that in. The number is 662 662- 404-2489, and that'll be on the, the corner of the screen throughout our message today, 662-404-2489. Uh, if you weren't here last week for part one, as we did questions about church, um, we got kind of three guidelines, three principles as we answer these questions that have been submitted. First of all, when the Bible speaks clearly, we will speak clearly. There's going to be some questions that uh, the Bible speaks directly to. And when we have those, uh, whether it's popular, whether the culture appreciates it, whether we like it or not, or it's comfortable, man, we're, we're going to be clear. We're going to be uh, directly address what the Bible says. We're not going to water down God's word. Just like we just sang about, we believe in the word of God. We believe that God's word is true. We believe that it's uh, life for us, that it's infallible. And so we're going to base our answers as much as we can on the word of God. Uh, secondly, there will be some questions that modern life doesn't necessarily connect explicitly to something in Scripture. And so when the Bible uh, gives us a principle, we will seek to apply that principle. And I'll tell you uh, as well as I can when we're doing that, hey, here's the biblical principle that I think is in play here. And then finally, there'll be some questions uh, that the Bible doesn't say anything about. Every once in a while, the Bible will be silent and it may be just a matter of opinion. And when we have those questions, I will give my opinion. Uh, I'll do my best to, to address that as well, let you know, hey, this is my opinion. We believe that we are obligated as believers to, to obey and submit to the word of God. You are not obligated to obey my opinion. Uh, so if it's my opinion and you want to disagree with me, you are free to disagree with me. Um, I am totally okay with that. Uh, but I do seek and pray that, that God would give me wisdom as I answer these and that hopefully this would rise beyond just my opinion and, and he would be able to speak through me. So I believe that will happen. So today our theme is eternal questions, questions uh, specifically about heaven, about salvation, uh, things along those lines. And so I've got six questions that have been submitted on this topic, and we're hopefully going to have time to get to all six of these. Uh, We're going to start with some that are maybe a little bit lighter and move to some that are a little heavier as we go. So without further ado, our first question that was submitted, which I thought was so interesting, is uh, Genesis 1 says that God created the heavens. Why is heavens plural? Um, I have to admit, I've known Genesis 1-1 for most of my life. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I've known that probably since I was like five years old. Uh, I've never wondered, why does it say heavens? Uh, so I had to dig into this question. This is probably the one that caught me the most off guard of any of them that were submitted, which is really cool. So I learned some stuff this week. So you may already know this, but this is new to me. Um, and I'm glad that I got an opportunity to, to research this out. In the Hebrew, which is what the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in, Uh, The word for heavens in Genesis chapter 1 and and many other places is Shemaim, Shemaim, or probably Shemaim. And so Shemaim in the Hebrew is actually the plural of Shema. Uh, And so Shema is is the word uh, that would be singular, but it has the plural form. And the reason why it's translated in the plural is because uh, that's the word that is used in Hebrew, the form that is used. And so what I found out is that Jewish tradition, which the Jews are who wrote the Old Testament, who received the Old Testament, in fact, most of the New Testament too. Um, and, and so it, they, in their tradition, they believe in three levels of heaven or, or three things that they describe as heaven. And so Shemayim implies that God created all three of these uh, as he created uh, the heavens and the earth. And so I'm going to share with you what those three things are. The first is earth's atmosphere. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, 19, the Bible refers to the birds of the sky uh, in the uh, NIV version, uh, the birds of the sky. And that word for sky is also Shemayim. So it's literally the birds of the heavens. And what they're talking about here is creation. They're not talking about birds in eternity. Uh, it's talking about birds that are flying around. And so the first thing that the, the Jews refer to as heaven is what we would call the air the sky, the, the immediate atmosphere around us. In fact, the, the King James often refers to it as the firmament. Uh, so it's, it's our atmosphere. So that's the first. Secondly, is probably more uh, familiar to us, is outer space. Psalm 19.1, along with many other Old Testament passages, refers to that space. Uh, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That word for heavens is shemayim. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And if you read through Psalm 19 in context, it's all about 
outer space. It's all about the stars, the planets, how everything that we look out to that's so far beyond us, how it declares the goodness of God, how, how good he is, what he is up to in the world. Um, and so lastly, uh, we get to what we would consider heaven primarily, the place where God eternally dwells, the place where God's presence is. First uh, Corinthians, or first Corinthians, first Kings 827 is one of a few places in the Old Testament that puts it this way. It says, would God, will God really dwell on earth? They're dedicating the temple. Solomon says, hey, would God even dwell on earth? Would God's presence live here? The heavens, even the highest heaven, the, the New Old Testament many times refers to the highest heaven. And when it refers to the highest heaven, it's talking specifically of the place where God dwells. Cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So Shemayim in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that God created the heavens. He created the air. He created the outer space. He created the place where he dwells eternally. And he created the earth. So I don't know if you learned something there, but I learned something uh, in studying that out. I enjoyed that. Here's one that I have gotten before and I was a little more prepared for. Second question, do dogs go to heaven? Uh, I was born in 1980. I'm a child of the late 80s and the early 90s. So the answer obviously is all dogs go to heaven. Thank you. Uh, movie that I saw when I was like eight years old and loved it. Uh, no, uh, actually, the Bible does not teach that all dogs go to heaven. Uh, the Bible teaches, uh, actually, not on this topic specifically at all. So I'm going to get into some biblical principle here and then share a, a little opinion with you as well. Um, the Bible, we do know this. Unlike humans, dogs do not have an eternal spirit. We, we are eternal beings. We are created in God's image. And so when God's creating, we just talked about Genesis 1, when God's creating, uh, on each day, it says that he looked down and he said it was good until the last day. And on the sixth day, he created man, shaped him out of dust, and he breathed into man and he looked down and he said it is very good. Uh, it says that he created man in his image, male and female, he created him. And so in his image, the meaning that we also are spirit, like God is spirit. We are eternal beings just as he is eternal. And, and that's reserved for us. No other animal, nothing else in creation, volcanoes or planets or, or anything else that we see has that eternal spirit. Only humans have been given that place in God's creation. Uh, and so it's that eternal spirit that needs to be saved. It's the reason that Jesus had to die to save us from our sins so that we would not spend eternity apart from him, but so that we could spend eternity with him. So the typical evangelical pastor answer, in fact, I've heard a few pastors in series like this give this answer that no, uh, your dogs do not go to heaven, your pets do not go to heaven, they're not spirits, therefore uh, they are not eternal. Um, I'm not convinced that that answer is 100% correct, however. Uh, we do know this. We do know that there are animals in eternity. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us this, speaking of eternity. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we see a whole bunch of animals listed right there in reference to eternity. We see leopards and lions and cobras and vipers and wolves and ox and, and all these different creatures that will be in eternity. And here's what's interesting about this, and here's what a lot of Christians miss. The vast majority of eternity will not be spent in heaven, the vast majority of eternity will be spent on earth. Uh, you see, what happens is after the tribulation, after Jesus comes down and he wins the victory in the battle of Armageddon, uh, the Bible says that there's going to be a thousand year reign, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to destroy all this that's been marked by sin, that's been marked uh, by death. He's going to destroy it all, and he's going to start over. And, and at that point, God will leave heaven, and he's going to come and make his dwelling on earth. He's going to make his permanent residence here. And so heaven isn't so much that, that other place outside of our universe where God is. Heaven is really just wherever God dwells. Uh, and so right now that is that place outside of our universe 
where God dwells. If you have family members who've passed on who were believers, uh, they are in heaven with Jesus uh, in this place beyond our universe. But, but many things about eternity that we know, many of the things that we read are actually going to happen here. Now, it won't be this earth. It'll be a, a resurrected earth, a restored earth, an earth that operates the way that God intended. And so Isaiah gives us a picture of that, that the animals are all going to get along, that your kid can play with cobras and have fun and, and hang out, and that none of that is going to be harmful because there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more death. So we know that animals are not eternal beings, but animals are going to be here on the new earth in eternity. So when, you're, when Spike passes away or Spot or whatever your dog's name happens to be, when that creature goes uh, away from this life, I cannot promise you that your dog is going to be in eternity. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, I, I know if the dog is in eternity, it's not because he was a good dog or a bad dog or an in-between dog. Um, it's because God loves you, and he wants to make a place that you're going to enjoy. He wants to make a place that, that you're going to love. Now, eternity is not going to be, it's not going to be heaven because your dog is there or isn't there. It's going to be heaven because Jesus is there, and he's going to be the focus. So whether you see your dog again one day or not, I can't tell you, uh, but I can tell you that whether you do or not, it's still going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be incredible. I, I would say this, though. I'd be really careful about the little lies that sometimes that parents tell their kids to try to comfort them goldfish dies or the hamster dies or whatever is all oh, they're in goldfish heaven or they're in hamster heaven or, or, or whatever and, and and it's sweet in that moment but one day that kid grows up and he says okay well mom told me that goldfish my goldfish is in heaven and clearly he's probably not what does that mean about what she said about grandma being in heaven um, and, and they start to make that connection. So I would advise you not to, to comfort your kid with, hey, they're in heaven. If they ask you specifically, hey, is Spot going to be in heaven? I, I would just tell them straight up, hey, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We know heaven's going to be awesome. Uh, and, and we know that Spike was a great dog. And, man, we're so grateful that we got to see him. And maybe one day we'll get to see him again. I don't know. I think you can, can honestly give that answer. But I would not promise them, hey, you're squirrel or ferret or whatever your crazy pet happens to be is going to be in heaven because the Bible certainly does not speak to that. Um, next question. Will we recognize people in heaven? What are we going to look like in heaven? Are we all going to be in shape? Uh, are we all going to be young? Are we all going to have our beach body? Like what's it going to be like in heaven? Um, really interesting question. The Bible does not answer this question explicitly either. The Bible does speak a lot about how our bodies will be resurrected. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, probably the longest section of scripture on this, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, which I think is verse 57, uh, is all about the, the resurrection from the dead. We just sang about it. Uh, I, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again. Uh, we, we believe that literally our physical bodies will be resurrected. Um, one question that a lot of times will come in along these lines is, is it okay to be cremated? Because there are, there are Christians who believe because we're going to be resurrected that you can't be cremated. And if you are, how can God resurrect your, your cremated body? Uh, well, I think that God is bigger than our burial practices. Uh, I think that somebody who got burned up in 9-11 uh, or in a plane crash or martyred for Christ uh, or whatever situation that he can resurrect them. He doesn't need bones and he doesn't need uh, a burial plot to know how to raise us from the dead. Amen? Uh, so I don't have any problem if you choose to be cremated. Uh, that's between you and God. I don't think that's uh, or really between you and your family probably. I don't think God really cares uh, what, what steps are taken there. Um, but we do know that our bodies will be resurrected. So what happens, and this is, let me speak to another unanswered question or an unasked question here, but one that people deal with. So right now, grandma, who's died a believer, she is in God's presence in heaven without her physical body. She's just in a spiritual place in the spirit. Um, one day Jesus will return. And it says when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And that statement throws a lot of people off because they think, well, hey, if the dead in Christ are going to rise when Jesus comes back, then that means they're not with Jesus right now. Well, they are with him spiritually, but when he comes back, he's bringing those spirits with him from heaven, and they're being restored to their body. So once they're restored to their body, what does that body look like? I, I know one strain of Christianity teaches that we'll all be 33 in eternity because that's how old Jesus was when he died. Uh, and so we're all going to be 33. Bible doesn't say that. Um, I don't know that that's the perfect age or the ideal age. Um, I was actually at a funeral of uh, uh, someone who, from a different faith about two weeks ago. 
Uh, and at this funeral, the person taught that everybody, uh, that was, there's this person who, who just passed away, this elderly lady, that she was going to be between 25 and 27 uh, in eternity. That, that's that everybody's between 25 to 27, that that's the perfect age, that's the ideal age, and we'll all be that. Uh, Bible doesn't teach that either. The Bible doesn't say how old we'll be. The Bible doesn't say what we'll look like. Um, I don't know. Uh, I do believe that you will recognize your loved ones, though, because in speaking of eternity, Paul says, now we know in part, but then we will know fully. So I don't just think that you're going to recognize Aunt Susie uh, or Grandpa Joe or, or whoever it is that, that went before you into heaven. I think you're going to recognize great, 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 great uncle so-and-so who was the first person in your family who came to Jesus who you don't even know existed. I think you're going to know immediately, wow, that was the person who, who first brought our family into the faith. That's the person who, who passed on that legacy to me. I think you're going to know. You're going to look and you're like, there's Peter. And he's not going to have a sign that says, hey, Peter. He's going to be like, yo, what's up, Pete? Like, you're just going to know because right now our, our, our knowledge is limited. But in, in eternity, it will not be limited. So I think you're absolutely going to recognize people, whether they, you know, your child who had, you had a miscarriage. You never met that baby. I don't know that there'll be a baby in eternity. I don't know that there'll be 33 or 27 or somewhere uh, outside of that, but I believe you'll know who they are. I believe you'll immediately know, man, that's my kid. That's the one I never got to lay eyes on. It's the one I never got to hold. That's him. That's her. Because then we will know in full. So I absolutely believe that you will be able to recognize those loved ones who've gone before you. Um, the last three questions today are a little tougher. Uh, the last three questions are, are three. We said in our series we're, we're going to do frequently asked questions, frequently argued questions, frequently avoided questions. Well, these are the frequently argued questions. These are three of the most controversial Christians in Christianity. I'd say these probably, if there was a top ten list of the most debated questions, these are at least two of these are there and possibly all three of them. So uh, let's have some fun. We'll go into some controversial waters, and uh, I'll tell you what I think. Uh, the first question is, what is the unpardonable sin? Uh, what is the unpardonable sin? And so some of you uh, are, are aware of that term, and maybe you've got an opinion about what that is, and some of you are like, I can't even pronounce unpardonable, uh, so why do I need to know what it means? Uh, well, th this is a, a phrase that comes from a few passages in what we call the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they are three of the four gospels, and they're the three that are most similar. John is kind of from a totally different perspective and records different events and different teachings from Jesus' life. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of follow uh, a similar pattern. And in the Synoptic Gospels, we see uh, some conversations that Jesus had where he talks about a sin that is not forgivable. Uh, and so for the sake of time, we're just going to take one of those conversations and use it uh, to, to build a foundation that, that I believe applies to, to the multiple conversations. Mark chapter 3 is what we will use. We're going to go from verse 20 to verse 30. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. If you've got family members who, who think you're crazy for serving Jesus, we kind of answered some questions about that last week. You're in good company. Jesus' family thought he was crazy uh, for, for following God and worshiping God the way that he did as well. Uh, verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, or another translation would be Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So these Pharisees say that, that all the miracles Jesus is doing, the healings and the, uh, the casting out of demons, that he's doing that through demonic power, not through godly power. Verse 23, so Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is undivided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Verse 29, here's the key verse here. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So according to Jesus' words... What is the unpardonable sin? What is the sin that's not forgivable? It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, is the next automatic question that comes up. Well, he does not 100% define that, 
for us. Uh, but he does say in verse 30 and gives us a little clue. Uh, he says he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So, so let's put this in the context of what's happening here. Jesus is performing all these miracles. Uh, he's, he's going on the tour of the countryside. People are rallying to him to worship him. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they don't like it. They're pushing back against it. They're jealous of Jesus' attention. And so in, in trying to figure out a way to destroy his reputation, they say, well, he's not actually doing these miracles through the power of God. He's, he's got a demon. This is demonic power that he's casting these demons out. This is demonic power that's causing him to raise people from the dead and, and to heal people. And so Jesus says, you can be forgiven for anything. Isn't that awesome, by the way? Isn't that great? Aren't you glad that he says, you, man, any slander you've committed, uh, any sin you've done, any impure thought, any terrible action you committed, murder, doesn't matter. He says, you can be forgiven anything except blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In, in other words, in context, he's saying when you attribute the things of God to the things of Satan, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes there's somebody who comes along and maybe uh, is claiming or, or perhaps even doing something supernatural. Uh, and there are times, the Bible tells us there will be false prophets. There will be the Antichrist is going to perform some miracles. Uh, and, and so there is a time for us to stand up and say, that's not of God. Uh, but I think we need to be really careful in discerning that. Just because we don't understand something or just because we're not familiar with something doesn't mean it's not necessarily of God. And so these Pharisees, they stood up against something, and they said, that's not God, and it was. Uh, and especially when you go to the next level and you say, that's not, not only is that not God, it's Satan. Um, that, that's a dangerous place to be. So we need to be very cautious about throwing those things out. I'm not saying there's never a time to say this isn't a God. There, there is. Absolutely a time scripturally. But we need to make sure we've applied that to scripture. We've checked that against his word uh, before we just stand up and throw something out because a different uh, church worships a different way or because there's something different and uncomfortable and unfamiliar to us. But we can't just go and say, well, that's not of God because I've not been a part of that. So let, let me get to the real question here. The real question probably isn't what is the unpardonable sin. The real question is have I committed it? How do I know if I've committed the unpardonable sin, right? Like how do I know if, if I've crossed that line? Well, the best way I've ever heard that question answered is this. If you're asking the question, the answer is no. Uh, because if you've committed the unpardonable sin, if you've blasphemed God, basically what you're doing is you are rejecting God. You are saying you are not God, you, you are the enemy. And, and so if you get to the point where you flat out reject God, I don't mean, man, there, there's a ton of atheists who came to Jesus. So just saying that I don't believe in God, that's not the unpardonable sin. Uh, it, it's a flat out rejection of who he is and what he's doing. It's a, it's a recognition that God is right there in front of you. Did, did these Pharisees commit the unpardonable sin? It certainly implies in this text that these Pharisees had gotten to that point. Now, we know some Pharisees came to Jesus later on. So maybe not all the Pharisees. Uh, we don't know exactly. But, but the implication is there's somebody in here asking this question and throwing this accusation against the Holy Spirit, and there's no more sacrifice for you. There's no more way for me to cover your sins because you are so far gone. You have rejected God's wooing. You've rejected his voice so strongly that he can't get to you. Um, and, and that is a very rare thing, very uncommon thing. And if you're asking the question, you're not there. Because if you're asking the question, there's a part of you that still wants what God has for you. Uh, there's a part of you that wants God's best. And so if you've ever asked that question, you're in the clear. Or at least you were when you asked it. Uh, but <laughs> hopefully you're still in the clear. Uh, but let, let me say this. This is why it's so important to obey the voice of God. When God puts his finger on a sin in your life and he says, this isn't okay anymore, this isn't okay, you, when, when God's, whether that sin is your gossip or your lying or your, your perversion or your addiction or, or whatever that sin happens to be, when God puts his finger on our sin, man, we need to repent, we need to give it to him, and we need to go to battle with it. Because the, place that, the way you get to that point is you ignore the voice of God so much, the Bible talks about your conscience being seared. In other words, you can't even hear God's voice anymore because he's come to you and you said, nope, I'm going to do what I want. He's come to you and said, nope, I'm in charge. He's come to you and said, you need to change this. He said, nope, I'm good with this. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to be. And, and there's a point in time, and I don't know where that point is. I don't know how, when, when we get to it. I, I believe it's very rare. But there's a place where you can get where you've rejected God's voice so often that you can't even hear him anymore. And that's a scary place to be. And so we need to build a habit of obedience to the voice of God. 
man, when you're driving down the road and you hit that road rage moment and you go off and you start speaking in French, right? That's what we like. We always blame it on the French. Pardon my French. Uh, when we start, you know, and you lose that. We talked, asked the question last week, is cussing a sin? If it's in anger, yes, it's always a sin. Um, if that's where you're at. That was the first service question that came in at the end. Um, repent of it right there. Man, when you feel God put his finger on that and say, you're better than this. I've called you to something bigger than this. And I'm using that as maybe a funny example. Uh, whatever that sin might be in your life, this is why I recommend it's like a daily habit of confessing your sins. What, what does Jesus do? In the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespassed against us, right? It's a daily habit. It's, it's a daily process of going for God and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, because that, that keeps your heart softened towards God. Keeps you from ever having a hard heart to where you're beyond his voice. And I think that's very, very crucial for us. Um, perhaps somewhat along the same lines is the next question. Can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? This question is, uh, is a funny one to me because I can't answer it without telling you some stuff about myself. Uh, I, I grew up in a vein of Christianity where we, we absolutely believe that you could lose your salvation. In fact, uh, my grandfather was a pastor, and uh, my mom, his, her, his daughter, is kind of the spiritual head of our family. My dad grew up Mormon, didn't know God, very far from God, didn't get saved until later on in life, and an amazing transformation in his life. But my mom was, was the spiritual leader in our home. Anything that we believed, anything that we were taught pretty much came from mom. Uh, and so she grew up believing you could lose your salvation, like, all the time. <laughs> like, she grew up believing, like, every time she went to church, she had to get saved. Because if she had a bad thought against her mom or had a bad attitude that week, if she walked out the door and got hit by a car, she was going to hell. Uh, and, and I'm not exaggerating that at all. That's, and she still struggles with that sometimes. Um, that's not God's grace. That's not God's salvation. What that does is that puts me at the center of my salvation. It's about how I act. It's about how I live. It's about my actions. I'm not the center of my salvation. Jesus is the center of my salvation. Um, and, and so it, it's not, the, you don't have to live in this constant fear of losing your salvation. I don't believe that is of God at all. Uh, so I, but I grew up in this vein where we did believe in it. Uh, in fact, so strongly that I had a bunch of friends. I was like kind of the only one in my group at school that wasn't a Baptist. Uh, and so all my Baptist friends, uh, we, they'd have youth rallies at their church, and they'd bring me to their youth rallies. And I'd go and I'd worship, and it was great, and I loved it. But they, they, they had this mission because they all believe in eternal security. And so they had this mission to convince me that I was wrong, that you couldn't lose your salvation. And so they'd always, no matter where we were, they'd find their youth pastor or their pastor and get the pastor to come talk to me. And we'd sit down and we'd debate for like 45 minutes whether you can lose your salvation. And so they had their verses, and I had my verses, and we'd go back and forth, and uh, it was really a great waste of time. Uh, like, nobody grew, nobody changed, nobody learned anything. Uh, we did not advance the kingdom of God in those conversations, I promise. Uh, so, so let me share just a little bit kind of the two different viewpoints. The, the viewpoint that you can't lose your salvation, one of the passages that they'll share a lot is Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once you are in Christ, once you have received his love, his salvation, his mercy, nothing can take you away. Uh, and, and there are many verses in Scripture that teach it, very similar to this. There, there are many places in Scripture that, that are going to give a very strong impression that you cannot lose your salvation. There's also some that give you the opposite impression. I'll just give you one example. This is in the Gospels, Jesus talking. Um, he's talking about a persecution that's to come. And he says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, Matthew 10, 22. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not the one who calls upon me as Lord in a moment, but the one who, who perseveres, the one who sticks it through, that's the one who will be saved. And there's many, many passages that are going to teach something very similar to this. And so you have kind of these two camps and, and people go back and forth. And here's, here's where I'm at today. I've come almost 180 degrees from, from where I grew up. I would say I'm like 99.7 to the you can't lose your salvation side of it. Um, the best way I've heard it illustrated is this, and here's why I, I believe the way that I do. Um, take kind of almost the picture of the prodigal son, except if you want to make yourself the prodigal. So the prodigal son, he's a son, first of all, right? He's not the prodigal servant. Uh, he's the prodigal son. He's in the family. He lives in the house. The father is the symbol of who? God, right? 
So he lives in the father's house, and he decides, you know what, this isn't good enough for me. I'm going to go see what's outside of father's house. So, so he cashes in his inheritance, and he leaves, and he goes, and he gets into every sin and every perversion and, and squanders it. He comes to his senses, and, and he comes back home. And when he comes back home, the father throws his arms around him and celebrates him and kills the fatted calf and, and puts him right back into his place. So, so what happened? What's going on in the meantime there? Was he no longer a son? Well, th- the best way that I can understand it is this. When, when the f- prodigal son leaves the, the family of God, he's not breaking relationship. He's still a son. He can't change that. If, if my kid, God forbid, ever runs away, he's still my son. He's dumb, but he's my son, right? Uh, so... That, that, that's when we run away from God, we are dumb, okay? Like when we backslide, we are dumb. Uh, and, and so, but, but you're still a son. And so what you've not done is you've not broken relationship, you've broken fellowship. And so uh, while the son lives in the father's house, he has advantage, all kinds of advantages, all kinds of benefits of fellowship with the father. He's got a fridge that's stocked that he can go and grab something to eat anytime he wants. He's got a big screen TV and a remote on the, the couch and, and all these benefits of living in the father's house. And when he leaves, he cuts himself off from the benefits. Man, when, when we rebel, when we turn away from God, when we backslide, we lose all the benefits of being his child. We, we lose the joy and the peace uh, and, and the wisdom and the instruction and his presence in our life. We lose all that, but I don't think that means that we're no longer his child. Uh, and so when he comes home, the, the father doesn't restore him to sonship. He still had sonship. The father restores him to fellowship. It's all yours again. You've got all the benefits of, of being my child again. So I'm, like I said, 99.7% of the way there. Here, here's the point three. Um, Hebrews talks about how if, if we've tasted the heavenly gift, if we've received salvation, uh, and then we turn away from it, that there's no sacrifice for sin left, that we can't trample on, on the cross of Christ, that we can't receive his salvation twice. And so I believe there is a very remote, very, un- very rare, probably literally committing the unpardonable sin, very, very small percentage of Christians who can lose their salvation or who do lose their salvation. Um, but I don't believe like my mom where she thought she lost her salvation and got saved again and lost it and got saved again and lost it and got saved again. That's not scripture at all. It says if you lose your salvation, you ain't getting it back. There's only one sacrifice for your sin. And so if you cash that in, it, it's done. Um, and, and so uh, I think it's very, very rare. Again, I don't think you have to worry about it. If that scares you, that means you're good. It's just, right, like you're, you've not committed that. You've not gotten to that place. Um, I don't think there's many people, perhaps just a, a very small handful who will ever get to that place. But I think it's a deliberate rejection of God. It's deliberately saying, you know what, God, I've seen what you have to offer, and it's not good enough. And so I want everything the world has to offer. I denounce my, my Christianity. I denounce my salvation. I denounce you. Um, and it's a very willful, very deliberate, and probably a long period of time. It doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't happen because you had a bad mood or because you had a bad week or probably even a bad year. Like it's very deep, uh, deeply entrenched to get to that place. So that's my best answer to that question. Um, last question in, in our message today. Is the rapture pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Some of you are smiling and laughing, and some of you are like, what's a trib? Uh, so let, let me unpack that for you for a minute. Uh, so the Bible teaches that there is a point in the end times when a person will rise up to, to great power on earth, and that person is what the Bible calls the Antichrist, that, that this person will actually follow very closely to the template of Jesus. In other words, he'll perform miracles. He, he'll be spectacularly loved and celebrated by the masses. At some point in time, he'll actually die and raise again, uh, and the world will adore him and, and sell themselves out to him. And so some Bible scholars will teach that he's actually going to be in control of, of the political system of the whole world. There will be a one-world government. Uh, others teach that maybe not the entire world, but probably Europe, Africa, and Asia. Um, and there's a few different, there's some gray area there. But we know there will be an antichrist. He'll be massively powerful, probably the most powerful person on earth, uh, massively loved. Uh, and he's going to rule for seven years. And that seven years is what the Bible refers to as the tribulation. Because it will be the great persecution of his church. It will be the great uh, period where globally it is not just unpopular to be a Christian, it's borderline risking your life to be a Christian. Um, and, and so there are three different uh, 
theologies. In fact, there's actually probably more than that, but three main theologies uh, on this idea of the rapture. Rapture means to be caught up. From comes from the Greek word raptura. Uh, it appears in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and so the rapture is this idea that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take Christians and he's going to save us from the tribulation. And so basically there's two things that happen in the tribulation. I should say this too. One is the mass persecution of the church. So it's the enemy pouring out his wrath on people who identify as Christians. Uh, and the other is, is the great wrath of God is going to be poured out on, on evil and on sin. And so there's these different camps. And so the pre-tribulation camp, or shortened the pre-trib camp, teaches that, that at the point where the Antichrist is about to come to power, Jesus is going to come and he's going to snatch up all the Christians and we're going to be gone and we're not going to be here for any of it because God doesn't want us to suffer. We were not created for wrath. Um, if you've ever like read the Left Behind books or watched the Left Behind movie or something along those lines, it's a very pre-tribulation theology. Pre-trib is probably the predominant theology in America right now by a pretty good margin. This is the, the most common belief system. So there's the pre-trib side. Then there's the mid-trib side. Mid-trib teaches that halfway through, exactly three and a half years into the Antichrist reign, uh, there will be an incident the Bible talks about called the abomination of desolations. And in the abomination of desolations, the Antichrist is going to go into the temple in Jerusalem. Side note, this is how we know the rapture can't happen today because there's no temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it hasn't been rebuilt yet, so uh, can't be today. It could be any time, but the temple has to be rebuilt first. And that could happen very, very quickly, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So the, the Antichrist is going to go into the temple, and he's going to do something so disrespectful towards God, so dishonoring towards him, that, that it's basically the worst thing that's happened in the history of the world. Um, and, and at that point in time, halfway through the Antichrist reign, that's when the wrath of God is really going to be poured out. The last three and a half years, it is going to be intense. God's basically going to go to war uh, with those who have rejected him. Um, and so the, the mid-trib teaching would be that at the moment of the abomination of desolations, that's when the rapture will happen. Because most of the, the wrath of God hasn't been poured out yet. And so God will leave us here for the first half to tell people, to, to encourage people to reject the Antichrist, not to take the mark of the beast. Um, and, and those things. And then halfway through, he's going to rescue his church and keep us from the, the worst of the worst. Um, which, again... All these theories have biblical backing, that there's reason to believe in each of these. Uh, the post-trib belief is that we'll be here for all of it, just kind of like it sounds, that there will be seven years of tribulation uh, and that basically uh, God's people will not necessarily be spared from the tribulation. We'll be here for the persecution from the enemy, but we will be spared from God's wrath, that just as in, in the plagues in Egypt, God sends 10 plagues against Egypt. Uh, the Israelites were still there. He didn't pull the Israelites out to do the plagues, but he protected the Israelites in the middle of the plagues. Uh, the angel of death was able to pass over them. Uh, and so in the same way that God would not pour out his wrath on his people, so his wrath would be poured out around us, but not on us. Noah's another example. The flood came, Noah's family was still here on earth, uh, but God gave them a way to, to be spared in the midst of his wrath being poured out. Um, so all three of these places or arguments ha have good biblical backing. I've been at all three places on this spectrum. Uh, again, I grew up super pre-trib. Like I grew up, I have a pre-trib family. My whole family is very pre-trib still. Um, we believed in the rapture. In fact, I was so pre-trib uh, when, when I was like in Bible college, it's funny how the stupid questions people ask in Bible college. Uh, but <laughs> one of the questions that they ask in Bible college sometimes would be like, so how, how do you want to die? Great question. I want to be eaten by a shark. Like, I don't know. Like, rather not. Uh, so my answer to that question would be, I want to be raptured, right? Like, sounds good to me. I don't want to die. Uh, or, or people would ask, how do you want to be buried? Do you want to be buried? You know, do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? And I'd say, neither. I want to be raptured. Uh, I'd still like to be raptured. Like, that's a good thought. I'd like to be spared from death. That would be cool. Um, but I've, I've definitely moved more towards the, the post-trib side of the argument as I've studied scripture. Um, I don't really care what you believe on this. The, the second half of this question uh, says, should I care? Um, and I don't really think it matters uh, because ultimately whether you are pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pan-trib, any other trib you want to be, um, the bottom line is the same. Follow Jesus serve Jesus. Jesus says in this world, we're going to have tribulation, whether he's saying that specifically to the seven years of tribulation or not. He's saying, we're going to face persecution. There are going to be people who don't like us because we're Christians. There's going to be people. He says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Like I didn't sign up for that. I just want to go to heaven. Well, that's part of the deal. 
It's part of the package. Uh, and so we need to embrace that. We need to be okay with that. If you need acceptance from the world, if you need to be liked by all the people around you, then you're probably going to be kind of miserable as a Christian. Because that's God does not promise that everybody's going to love you. He doesn't say everybody's going to like you. He doesn't say that that it's always going to be great. Now, the problem for us is for like the last 250 years, America's been this amazing place to be a Christian. And it's been really, really easy. And so we've bought into this idea that we have some sort of birthright to never be persecuted and to never have any problems and that Christianity needs to be embraced and celebrated by our country. God doesn't promise us that. Now, I hope America will, would return to some of that. I hope America will make some better decisions and, and Christianity would, would move up in the priority in our nation again. But, but God doesn't promise that it will. And whether it does or whether it doesn't, we need to be committed. I'm following Jesus no matter what. Uh, whether, whether he rescues us before the Antichrist comes or halfway through the Antichrist reign or, or doesn't rescue us at all, we need to be committed. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to love him. He is Lord of my life. He's not just my fire insurance. Uh, and I think a lot of times in, in American Christianity, we buy into this, this myth that everything's going to be easy and everything's going to be okay. And God doesn't promise us that. Here's what he does promise us. Here's what you need to know about the end. Whether you agree with me on when the tribulation will happen or not, I seriously don't care. I'm not even convinced about it. I'm not like hardcore post-trib. We're teaching a series on why it's the post-tribulation. I'm not there at all. Like if I'm like percentage-wise, I'm like 30% pre-trib, 30% mid-trib, 40% post. Like I'm not like strong at all in anything, but that's my greatest leaning right now. Um, here's what you do need to know. Here's what matters for us as Christians. Three things that you need to know about the end. Number one. Jesus will come back. Whether it's before, middle, after, when, I don't know, but I know this, he's coming back. In fact, he tells his disciples this in John chapter 14. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. In fact, that's a great, great statement to hold on to when we talk about things about the end. I know sometimes this can be very scary. This can be very uh, disheartening. This can be very terrifying for people. Uh, man, Left Behind can be a horror movie, right? Like, you, like can be really, really freaked out. And, and Jesus says, man, don't let your heart be troubled. There's peace in Jesus. He's coming back. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms, or in NIV, it says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. He says, I'm coming back and I'm taking you with me. And he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. The way is him, the way, the truth. And the life, that's how we get there, is through him. So number one, Jesus will come back. Uh, I don't know when. I know people that are really convinced it's going to be really soon. People that, that look at the world events and look at biblical prophecy and they think, man, it's going to be very soon. I also know every generation in the history of post, since Jesus, every generation in the last 2,000 years thought they were the generation Jesus was going to come back. And it hasn't happened yet. doesn't mean it's not going to. It's going to happen one day. I don't know if it's going to be our generation or not. But whether it does or whether it isn't, that's terrible grammar. Whether he does or whether he doesn't, in my generation, it doesn't change the way that I live. Man, my life is his, regardless of, of whether he's returning in my lifetime or 300 years from now. Uh, I know that there is a hope that Jesus will come back. Secondly, you need to know not only would Jesus come back, but Jesus wins. In the end, no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how terrible the persecution gets, no matter how difficult the season of life is in, uh, no matter how bad our circumstances are, Jesus is going to win in the end. He will win. The Bible says in, in Revelation chapter 20 that a day will come when, when he's going to take the, the dragon, which is Satan, uh, the Antichrist, who rises up and the beast, and he's going to cast them into the eternal lake of fire. That they are going to ultimately lose, and Jesus is going to ultimately win. Uh, and if our trust is in him, we can know that, that, that no matter how difficult it is, he's going to win. Just this past week, I believe it's 15 more saints of God were burned alive by ISIS. And you know, before the point where they came, where that match was lit, and their flesh began to burn up, they probably suffered some awful torture for the last few days, weeks, months leading up to that point. That wasn't the first time that something bad happened to them. And how is it that, that across planet Earth, every day, every day, men and women die simply because they refuse to renounce the name of Jesus? Because this right here, because they know that they know that they know that in the end, Jesus wins. And that there's nothing man can do 
There's nothing a government can do. There's nothing an, an evil empire can do to harm them in a way that's gonna steal them from Jesus' victory. And so they'll endure whatever. And this, is, this has gone on down through history where men and women have laid down their lives. In fact, one of the church fathers, I believe it was Tertullian, uh, he, he said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, every time Christians die for their faith, the church grows. It explodes. And so I don't look forward to persecution in America. I'm not like, like a masochistic Christian, like, come on, bring it on. Uh, I don't look forward to that. I don't want my kids to be persecuted for their faith. But I'll tell you this, if and when persecution does come here, the church is going to clean up its act. The church is going to get right with God. And it will be the greatest generation of the church in the United States when that happens. Because persecution always brings out the best in God's people. It always brings out the best. So I don't, again, I don't look forward to that. I'm not like, come on, bring it on. God, send persecution. I'm not praying that at all. But if it happens, we need to remember Jesus is going to win. And as he does, the church is going to grow, man. People are going to get serious and right with God. And then the third thing that you need to know is not only does Jesus win, but in the end, Jesus shares his victory with us. If you're a Christian, you win. If you're with Jesus, because he's going to come in and he's going to ride on a white horse and he's going to be triumphant over the enemy. He's going to win a great victory. And if you're a Christian, you're coming with him. He's giving you a horse and you're saddling up and you're going off. And, and you, the Bible says that we're actually going to reign with him. Now, I don't know if that means you got a throne or what that looks like or how you're going to reign. But I know this. Whatever it is with Jesus is going to be awesome. Once he wins that final victory, once death is defeated, in fact, it says the last enemy that's defeated is death itself. And once death himself has been defeated and there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears and no more death, it's going to be a pretty amazing place to be. And his presence will be absolute fullness of joy. So I can't promise you what tomorrow holds. I can't promise you what will happen after this year's elections or what's going to happen in America, if America is going to turn its heart back to God and get right with him or if America is going to fade into oblivion. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. But I do know this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to win. And if you're a Christian, if you identify with him, if he is your Lord and Savior, you're going to win with him. And that's pretty awesome. Amen? Guys, I, I want to tell you very clearly as we wrap up today, I had two goals for today's message. Um, my first goal was simply this. I just wanted to speak some truth. Uh, as we answer these questions, man, the, the Bible says that our, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And so my job as a pastor is to feed God's sheep. Uh, and so I wanted to bring some knowledge into some areas that maybe we were ignorant of or, or some areas that maybe we had questions in. Uh, and, and that's my job. That's my goal through this whole series is to speak some knowledge, to speak some truth. And hopefully you learned something today. Maybe you learned something about the three heavens. And maybe you learned something about whether your dog will or won't be in heaven. Or maybe you didn't and you're mad because I didn't really answer the question and you don't know for sure. Uh, maybe you learned something about the tribulation or about whether you might lose your salvation or what the unpardonable sin is. I don't know. But hopefully I was able to bring some knowledge. But my second goal and my bigger goal for today's message especially was this. That God's people, those who are gathered in our midst today, would wrestle with eternity. First of all, I want you to wrestle with your eternity. You see, I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, whether you can lose your salvation. I don't think there's a lot of people losing their salvation. I do think there's probably a lot of people in America who have bought into a lie that they're saved and they're not. So we talked about on Easter Sunday how Jesus is first and he cannot accept second. Um, and so I think there's a lot of Christians who grow up or a lot of people who grow up in America and you go to church because that's what your family does or, or you're around it or you believe or whatever and, and you've never made Jesus Lord of your life. You never said, Jesus, you're in charge. Jesus is just kind of this side thing that we celebrate one day of the week and then we do whatever we want the rest of the week. And again, our salvation is not about our actions, but it is about our heart. And if our heart has never been yielded to him, if our, the, the knee of our heart has never bowed before him and declared him as Lord, you're not a Christian. You're not. And so my guess is probably the vast majority of this room, this, that's not you. The vast majority of us in this room, we have given our lives to Jesus. We have declared him as number one in our heart. But if, if you haven't, I want you to wrestle with that today. I want you to know that you know that you've got to bend that knee and bow before him and give him that place where he's first. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. God knows I'm not. But, but that you know that he is Lord of your life. Secondly, for those in the other category, those of us who have given our life to Jesus, and we know that he's Lord, 
I want us to wrestle with the implication of eternity. See, we didn't talk a lot about hell today. This was one of the questions that came in, but can, can I just say this? Hell's a real place, just like heaven is. Hell's a place where, where we can talk about all the suffering and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that, but the worst thing about hell is there's no presence of God there. Where you are eternally separated from the God who laid down his life for you, who simply says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and, and I'll give you a place with me. And so hell's a bad place to go. I don't know how bad it is, but I know I don't want to be there. I don't want to find out. And if you're a Christian here today, you don't have to worry about that place for you. But I do believe we need to wrestle with the uncomfortable nature of the fact that we know people who are headed there. See, I think the reality of hell is so real that Jesus had to leave heaven and die a very awful, miserable, tortured death to pay a price for my sins so I don't have to go there. See, see, if Jesus didn't think hell was a big deal, he wouldn't have gone through what he went through for me. He thinks it's a very big deal, and he doesn't want me to end up there. He doesn't want you to end up there. He doesn't want our friends, our loved ones, the people around us, the lost people on the other side of the world who've never heard his name, he doesn't want them to end up there. And so that should make us a little bit uncomfortable today if we're not investing our life in eternity, if we're not investing our life to, to spread the word of Jesus, to spread his name, to bring salvation to the lost. And so maybe you are today, and if you are, man, I celebrate that, and I praise God for that. Maybe you're, you're investing your life, you're leveraging your conversations, your time. You're waking up every morning and saying, God, use me to bring somebody from darkness into light today. And if that's you, that is awesome. But if you're not at that place right now, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not at this place to, to, to put you down. I am here to say this. It matters. Eternity is real. If we say we believe in the Bible, and I do. If we say that we believe in heaven, and I do, we got to believe in hell too. And there's people that we know in our workplace, in our family, in our job, and in our neighborhood, in our school, in our ball team. There's people that we know that don't know Jesus. And that should bother us. That should bother us so much that it changes the way that we live. That it changes the way that we interact, that it changes the focus of our day, that we quit living for ourselves, that we quit waking up and just trying to go through the daily grind to pay off another bill and have another meal with, a, with our family. But that, you know what, God, there's something bigger you've given me an opportunity to be a part of, and I embrace my role in helping people to miss hell and make heaven. So, what I want us to do is we're gonna pray, and, and as we do, I'm gonna ask you these two questions. If you've wrestled with the question of your own eternity and you're not confident where you're at, I want to help you to be confident. If you've wrestled with the question of others' eternity and you're not comfortable with the way that you're investing your life to impact that, I want to pray that things would change, that God would fill us with his spirit, that he would use us in a new and a powerful and a mighty way, that he'd remind us of the implication and the importance of investing in eternity. So would you join me and bow your heads and close your eyes? Father God, I thank you so much today for Jesus. God, I thank you that Jesus died for us, that he got victory over death, he got victory over sin, and that he's coming back, and he's going to bring great victory uh, over those who stand against you, God, that he's going to bring victory for us, that we're going to be able to reign with you in eternity, God. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Lord, if there's anybody here today who's never embraced you as Lord of their life, if there's anybody here today who's never truly given you their heart and made you first in, in that most important place, God, I ask that you help me to find them today. God, that, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would woo them right now, that you would draw them to yourself. God, that they would truly give you their life. They would truly give you their heart. They would truly give you all that they are, that they would know the joy of being your child. They would know the joy of your salvation. God, if there's anyone here, help us to find them in Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you and you've wrestled with the question of your own eternity today and you don't like your answer, either you know you're not his child or, or you're really not sure you've ever made him Lord of your life, I wanna help you to know that you know today. If you slip up your hand, I just wanna lead you in a prayer of repentance, a prayer that says, God, I make you Lord. I place you on the throne of my heart. Praise God, praise God. Second question, a much bigger question, I think, for those of us gathered here today is if you look at your own life, the way that you live, the, the way that you use your time, the way you use your talent, your treasure, whatever it might be, and, and you see, you know what, I know God is calling me to invest more in his kingdom. 
than I am. I know God has more for me than what I'm walking in right now. And I want to repent for for ways that I missed it. But I just want to ask him to empower me, to fill me with the spirit, to use me in a great way, to impact eternity, to take others with me. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. Hands all over the room. Anybody else? I need to invest in eternity. Praise God. Lord Jesus. Father, you see hands all over this room. You see men, women, young people, God. who who know that you've got more for them. And so, God, right now we just rebuke the spirit of condemnation that would cause them to walk out of here and and feel like a failure or feel like somehow they're they're less than. God, we just rebuke that in Jesus' name. We believe there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But, God, we do believe that, that eternity matters. And so we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would indwell us, that you would capture our hearts, Lord, that you would fill our thoughts. Uh, God, with with eternity, that we would remember that it matters, that we would remember our conversations matter, that we would remember that that the way that we live matters. God, that we would take Jesus to the lost, that we would take Jesus into our family, into our neighborhood, into our school, into our workplace, into whatever circle of influence you've given us. God, that we would invest in eternity, Lord, that we would see others come with us when Jesus returns, when Jesus wins, and when Jesus wins for us, Lord, that we would not be alone, that we'd have so many others with us. God, use us for your glory. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. Come on, let's give God a praise this morning. I love you guys. I love that I can speak on this topic and I can look out and I know that that people's hearts are touched by the idea that that God wants to use them in a greater way to impact somebody's eternity. Man, let's not just leave it as a feeling. If you raise your hand on that, man, I, I would ask you sometime today to, to get along with God and just, just pour out your heart and, and just what we just I just prayed for, that you would pray that in, in your own way. God, I want to be used for your glory. God, help me this week, each day, to, to find those opportunities to impact eternity. God, because I, I know that God has them for each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're going to worship God in our tithes and our offering before we go today. And uh, originally when we had this service lined up, our offering time was going to be earlier in our service like it normally is. But felt like God kind of spoke to me this morning and gave me a totally different direction to, to go for our offering time just because of the nature of the message. Um, there's a quote that I love so much. Pastor George Wood, who is uh, now he's the superintendent of the Assemblies of God. But uh, he's got this quote. He says, Jesus teaches us to hold earthly things lightly and eternal things tightly. Jesus teaches us to hold on to earthly things lightly and eternal things tightly. And, and so Jesus actually says this. He says that we can't love both money and God. We've got to choose. Uh, and, and I get it, man. As Americans, we love money. Like we love stuff. We love newer and bigger and better and nicer. Uh, and, and so often we hold on to those earthly things. But, but just like I can only hold this microphone, I can't use both hands to talk, you know, like if a microphone like float in front of me, that'd be awesome. Uh, I got to grab it with one hand to be able to do something else with the other hand. And, and I think it's a beautiful illustration. I can't hold on to the things of eternity and grab hold of the things of the earth. And I can't hold on to the things of the earth and hold on to the things of eternity. I have to choose. We have to choose. And, and so this fleshes out in more than just our finances. This fleshes out in our time and our conversation and in our talents in so many ways. But I think the biggest way and the way that Jesus addresses directly is our finances. He says, you cannot love both God and money. You can't do it. And, and so if money is the priority in my life, if money is the thing that I'm chasing, if money is the thing that I spend my time thinking about, if money is the thing that I can't yield and give to him, then he doesn't really have my heart. But he also says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, when you begin to invest in his kingdom, when you begin to prioritize your giving, when you begin to carve things out in your budget and plan God into your budget, which I know is not normal and not natural and not easy, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody for not doing it, but when you take that step and say, okay, I'm going to prioritize God. If I'm going to say he's first, he's going to be first in my finances. I'm going to set aside that first 10% for him. And, and that might mean I have to cancel a cell phone plan or a cable package or might mean I have to downgrade a vehicle. Like there might be some actual, like it might affect your lifestyle, which by the way, I think that's awesome. Like when your faith gets to the point that it affects your lifestyle, your faith is, is doing some things. Uh, there's nothing that I can give up on earth that, that's going to hurt me to invest in eternity. And so I want to challenge you today, City Church, hold earthly things lightly and grab hold with all your might 
to eternal things. Let's be people who see, see through an eternal perspective. Let's be people who prioritize eternity because every dime that we invest in his kingdom matters. Every opportunity we have to give matters. And, and uh, trust me, I'm not telling you something that, that we're not practicing in our own life. And we just got a new baby and we just got a new doctor bill and there's hundreds of dollars going here and thousands of dollars going there. And I get the pressure of finance. But, but we've, we've set aside, we give the first 20% of our income back to God. And, and since we've taken that step, we haven't had a bill that didn't get paid. We haven't had, and, and it shouldn't happen because we're basically working on one income, and that's a church income, and it's not that big. And I'm, this is not, hey, I need a raise, so we're going to talk about giving. This has got nothing to do with me getting a raise. It has to do with God provides. He is faithful when we prioritize him. And so I encourage you, hold earthly things lightly. Grab hold with both hands to eternal things. And God's going to bless you, and he's going to use us to impact eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to give to you today. God, I just pray that you would uh, speak to us, God, to, to hold on to earthly things lightly, to begin to release our grip on stuff, to begin to release our grip on status, to begin to release our grip on, on selfishness, on heaping things upon ourselves, and begin to see the bigger picture, God, that there's people dying and going to hell, and we need to give Jesus to them. God, so we ask that you would help us to, to grab hold of, of eternal things right now in Jesus' name. God, as we give, Lord, let, let this just be a physical demonstration of what we're doing in the spirit, of grabbing hold of the greater things you have for us, the spiritual things you're calling us to. We thank you, God. For, for blessing those who give in a mighty way. God, we thank you for helping us to take that step to prioritize you. Uh, Lord, we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Jimmy has joined me for one final question uh, that was texted in today. And we'll check, check this out and, uh, and let you guys get out of here. What you got? All right. It says, uh, what do you believe when people say that they have had near-death experiences and that they have seen Jesus in loved ones? Good question. Um, what do I believe when, when people say they've had a near-death experience and they've seen Jesus and or loved ones in heaven? Um, this is a very controversial question. Uh, there's people who fall on different sides of this for sure. But let me say this. In the Bible, um, it doesn't give us a lot of detail about what heaven is like. Uh, in fact, the Bible is su surprisingly quiet about the, the specifics of heaven, and I think the reason for that is he doesn't want us so obsessed with this is what heaven will be like that, that we miss out on his mission for us on earth. Um, and, and so when somebody says, hey, I died and I went to heaven and I saw these 47 things and this happened, um, there's, there's a part of me that gets very cautious. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that those people are lying or they're making it up, although I know that there was one book that was written recently. Uh, I think it's The Boy Who Went to Heaven that they came out and said straight up, we, we made the whole thing up because we knew a bunch of stupid Christians would buy the book and we make a million dollars. Um, and, and so there are hoaxes out there uh, like that. Um, that doesn't mean that just because somebody counterfeited something doesn't mean everybody's making their story up. I'm not saying that. Um, here's what I would, here's where I fall on those things primarily. I think they're probably more likely to be a vision of heaven than actually being in heaven. In other words, I think God probably gave them a picture of what heaven is like rather than physically like, taking their spirit into heaven. Um, I do believe there's legitimacy in some of those stories. I just told you of an illegitimate one. I'm going to tell you very quickly, too, that I believe very strongly. Um, one, when I was eight years old, my uncle died. My uncle, like my father, had grown up Mormon, and uh, he had lung cancer. Uh, and Excuse me, not lung cancer. He had bladder cancer. And he ended up uh, being in the hospital for about two weeks in a coma before he finally passed away. And uh, my grandfather was also Mormon. And so my parents, when he was on his deathbed, they, they led him to Christ. He, he embraced Jesus. He renounced what he had believed before. And we know that my grandfather's in heaven, which I really look forward to seeing him one day because I was 18 months when he died, which is Judah's age now. So I had no, rem no memory of that. Um, well, because of what had happened when my uncle was on his deathbed, there was no way they were letting my mom and dad alone with him because they weren't going to let him get converted too. Uh, and so um, my mom would go in once he had a coma and she would go into his room and just hold his hand and, and pray under her breath for him and, and intercede for him and uh, praying that he'd come out of the coma, praying that he'd meet Jesus. And he never came out of the coma. He breathed his last and he went on to the next life. And we thought he died apart from Christ. And uh, 
there was a new lady named BJ who started coming to our church, and she went out to her pastor and was like, hey, I had this really weird dream, and I don't know what it means, but, but I think it's important. And so she told him this story, and long story short, she described the, the neighborhood where my uncle lived, uh, and she described that there was, a, there was a man there with a wooden leg. We had a, my dad has an uncle uh, with a wooden leg, um, and, and just crazy, crazy details. And, and she walks into this house, and she sees all these kids playing, and she comes around the corner into the living room, and there she said, there I saw Jesus with, with a man named John. And, of course, my uncle's name was John. Um, and so this lady didn't know us. She didn't know our family. She didn't know anything about us. She didn't know we had Uncle John. Didn't know he just died. Like, totally clueless. Um, so I believe that that was God's way of telling our family that Uncle John came to Jesus on his deathbed. That even in his coma, that even though his mind wasn't there, his spirit was. And he was able to, to yield his life to Christ and that I'm going to see my uncle again one day. I don't know that for sure, but too many things for it to be a coincidence. Like, I, I believe it very, very strongly. In fact, my whole family believes in that dream very strongly. So I look forward to seeing my Uncle John one day. Um, so I do believe that God speaks in dreams. I believe God speaks in visions. And, and I believe that God speaks to us about eternity. So I certainly don't want to cancel out all of those stories. I, I just think... Maybe sometimes people misunderstand. Maybe they, I don't think that BJ actually went to heaven. I think she had a vision uh, that, that spoke to her about a deeper truth about what was going on in heaven. Um, so I'm skeptical on some of those stories. That certainly doesn't mean that God doesn't speak. Um, and, and so I think we, we need to have, I think we need to be cautious. I don't think we need to embrace every story that anybody throws out because, oh man, it's about heaven, so therefore it's true. Because uh, I don't think that's always the case. And, and I think a lot of times, like with this story about the boy who went to heaven, it ends up making Christians look pretty foolish when, when we embrace something that ends up, haha, just kidding. Um, it was a hoax. Uh, so we need to be cautious at the same time when, when there's significant evidence that there, there's some legitimacy here. I believe absolutely that God can speak and that God does speak. And, and there's another story I want to tell you super quickly and I'll let you get out of here. Um, I have a friend who I went to high school with named Jonathan Thomas. Jonathan uh, graduated with me in, in 1999 from East Rutherford High School, little bitty Podoc town in North Carolina. Jonathan has an older brother, Jay, uh, two children and a family. Um, they both had, had people tell them about 13 years ago, uh, so a little bit after we got out of high school, that, that they were going to stand one day in, in front of thousands, in front of masses, and, and, and preach the gospel and worship God and course at that point in time they were just two little nobodies um shortly after that their mother died um and when their mom died uh and i don't even remember specifically who it was somebody had a dream and, and the dream was that the, when the mom had died she had appeared before jesus and jesus gave her the option to to come back um but if she didn't come back he said i'm going to use both of your sons in a, in a mighty way in a way that you'll you won't believe and so that she opted to to stay with Jesus. Um, now, I get it. I hear those stories, and I'm skeptical too. Uh, last night, Jonathan and Jay both stood on a platform in Los Angeles, California, in front of over 60,000 people at a, a convention at a, called Azusa Now, uh, the celebration of the Azusa Street Revival 100 years ago when the baptism of the Holy Spirit first came. Um, for me, that was confirmation that that dream was true. Because uh, these are two dudes who have no special education. They're not massively gifted. They're people who just really love Jesus, who he's chosen to use in a, in a mighty and an awesome way. Uh, so I choose to believe that that story was true because I see fruit of it. God tells us to test the prophets. I don't believe anything that, or everything that somebody says. But, but when it lines up, when there's evidence behind it, and, and over 13 years, I can look back and say, wow, that thing that was said back then is true today, um, I put some credence in it. And so that's where I stand on that. I don't embrace everything everybody says. I don't reject everything everybody says. I think we have to be cautious. Uh, but, but if there's fruit behind it, if it lines up with what happens in reality, I think absolutely God is capable of speaking to his people today, and he does speak to his people today. And sometimes he speaks about heaven, or he speaks about eternity. So that's my didn't expect that question. Uh, first time I ever cried in a post message question. Thanks a lot, whoever sent that in. Uh, those are supposed to be the easy ones. Uh, 
Awesome. So anyway, there you go. Next week at Faith Q Part 3, we're actually talking about the Holy Spirit. So we can maybe dive in a little more into some of that next week. Looking forward to it. You guys rock. Have a great day.